0: Thank you, Father, for the opportunity today to be able to declare openly and publicly the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that we are able to live in a nation where this gospel can be preached freely and openly. And Father, we don't ever want to take that for granted, so we ask your blessing upon this nation, Father, that you would work in this nation to correct what needs to be corrected, but that your blessing would continue upon this nation because it still does fund the gospel of Jesus Christ more than any other nation, and it still does allow the preaching of this gospel to go forth freely and openly, not just in a public forum here but over our airways, and we ask you to bless that freedom and continue that freedom in Jesus' name. And Father, we pray now as the Word of God is declared that we trust in the Holy Spirit to take this precious Word that you've given to us and to breathe across at the breath of life so that it may enter into our hearts and our spirits and breathe life into our hearts, life into our spirits, that we may be touched today by the presence and the graciousness and the goodness of God. May we leave here today not with more information but with changed hearts, Father. And for that we have to trust and do trust in the faithfulness of your precious Holy Spirit. So I surrender myself to him to allow him to work through me in whatever way he chooses. I yield my tongue to him and my heart to him that every word that is declared is not only in accordance with your will but it is your heart behind it, Father, for only you by your Spirit can reveal who you are. And so we trust you for that. We thank you for that in advance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. We've been looking over this last year about why we're here. Why are we here as a church? Why are you here as an individual? Why am I here in this life? And we found out it is the reason we're here according to the Bible. and, And after all, God's the one who made us. And He's the one who made us. He knows the purpose for which He has made us. And when we try to live our life for purposes other than that, it just doesn't work well. And we sang this last song we sang about a surrendering all to Him. It's just surrendering to His will, what He wants for your life, and to realize that you're not your own. Paul says that to Corinthians because they really had some issues that they had needed some to be straightened out about. And, and the core of that was he had to remind them, don't you remember you're not your own? You were bought with a price. In fact, you've been twice bought. You were made by God, therefore He owns you and then we rebelled against Him, and He paid to get us back, so He bought us back. So we're twice purchased. So He owns us. We, we are not our life, and, and when you surrender to that, that's when you get Peace. And there's something in our human nature that wants to struggle because we want to be our own, the master of our own fate. Well, that's what Adam did and Eve did in the garden, and that's why we're dealing with all the mess we're dealing with today. It's all because man wants to live his own life his own way and include God in it in some cases, allow God to come along and to bless us to be able to call upon God when we need Him, but we want to do what we want to do and then ask God to help us when we get ourselves into a mess and help us to get out of it. And fortunately, God is very gracious and very patient. But the ultimate goal is for us to come to the place where we recognize we're not our own. We belong to Him. And when you surrender to him, then you'll ultimately get peace. The only true peace comes in surrendering your life, the purpose of your life, the purpose of each day that you have, that you surrender that to him. And Jesus is the greatest example of that because he was totally surrendered to his Father and he was the most peaceful, the most successful man that ever lived because he was completely surrendered to his Father's will for him. And so we've been talking about that and there's no mystery in the Bible about what that will is because in Matthew chapter 28 and Mark chapter 16, that we are to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. That's why the churches here and we have many programs and many other things we do, but they're all in to somehow support that ultimate purpose, which is to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. So when we come here to learn on Sunday mornings and to be encouraged and to be strengthened and to be ministered to, it's so that we can be strengthened and encouraged and trained to go out and to, and to bring the gospel out into our world, wherever your world may be so that's what we've been learning and we've seen that the, the, the we're, we're to go and the way we're to preach the gospel because that's what we're talking about now it's not just to stand on a corner with a bullhorn and a sign that says repent the world is coming to an end Uh, and there may be times when that works but by and large it doesn't work but what the Bible says what we learn to do Jesus said and and told his disciples in Acts chapter 1 when he was giving them these instructions or the final part of these instructions he said you are to wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high this is in Acts chapter 1 and he said and when you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now and then you shall go forth and you shall be witnesses of me and we've misread that is to thinking that what the church is here is to go and witness for Him. Witness being something that we do. And in that verse, verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, the word witness is a noun, it's not a verb. It's something we're to become, not something we're to do. Because if you go do it, you can go do witnessing on Saturday afternoon and live like the devil the rest of the week. And what we found is God's plan is that our lives are to be written letters. Paul talked to the church at Corinth. that says, you are a letter, an epistle, he says, written and read by all men. And we've asked the question, if, if my life is a letter, what does it say? What does your life say to the, your fr- family? What does your life say to your own children? What does your life say to your co-workers? What does your life say to your neighbors? And our life is speaking all the time. Not much, we, not much what we say, as much we say as what we, we do. And so we've been looking at the example of that, to what it means to be a witness, and we looked at Jesus as the perfect example because Jesus said right at the end when He met with His disciples for the last time before He went to the cross, in John chapter 14, He said, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. So if, if I am a perfect example of Him, of what the Father is like, of His heart, of His will, of his actions, and he said, the works that I did, the Father in me did those works, which is why Jesus said to his disciples, you must wait until you're filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit, because that's the same presence of the Father in him that did those works, the same presence of the Father in him that cared for people that needs to be in us so that we can go do that work. And then we looked at Ephesians chapter 3, and a prayer that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus. Where he said, I bow my knees before the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would strengthen you with his Spirit in his inner man. That's the Holy Spirit, that we be filled with the Holy Spirit in our inner man so that Christ can dwell in us. And what we saw is that God needs to strengthen us by the power of his Holy Spirit in us in order for Christ to be able to live in us. Why? Because our own nature, our own ways, our own thinking, our own strength, our own determination is not enough. Pastor Kurt shared that because even to surrender ourselves to him, you can't do that in your strength. You don't have the strength because there's something inherent in our fallen nature, in our flesh, that, oh yeah, we'll give everything but that last bit of control. We've got to keep that last bit of control just in case this doesn't work out so I can pull everything back. So I have the, somehow have the final say. So it requires the Holy Spirit in us to strengthen us so that Jesus can live His life in us, for us, and through us. That we being rooted and grounded in love, not faith, that we need faith, not hope, we need hope, not grace, we need that, but be rooted and grounded in love, we may come to know, and this is what we're going to talk about, begun to talk about last week, we may come to know, and that word means by experience, not just intellectually, that we may come to know the breadth and the length and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding. How can you know something that passes knowing? Because you have two knowers in you. One knower is located between your ears. That's the one we're learning on Wednesday night how to reprogram. That's your mind. And your mind and my mind are very limited in terms of what we can know when it comes to God. In fact, your mind really cannot grasp God because God is a spirit. He's not a concept. And your mind can grasp concepts and ideas and principles, but it cannot cannot grasp a person. You cannot know your wife intellectually. I mean, you can know about her, but the knowing that needs to take place is an emotional, a spiritual knowledge. And the same is true of God. That's why in in John chapter 4... Jesus said, my father is seeking true worshipers. And a true worshiper is someone that worships in spirit and in truth because God is a spirit. So true worship, now praise you can do with your mind, thanksgiving you can give to him with your mind, but true worship takes place spirit to spirit because God is a spirit, he's not a mind. He's not the great mind of the universe. He's a spirit being. And that's why he made you a spirit being. So that we can be joined to Him and have communion with Him and be one with Him and worship Him. And so we, there's the, the second knower you have, the first one is your mind. The second knower that you have is your spirit. And your spirit man is able to comprehend all kinds of things your mind cannot comprehend. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says to try to explain spiritual things to unspiritual people, it won't work because they're spiritually appraised, they're spiritually understood. So to try to understand, so to go on on television and try to explain the love of God and try to explain the gospel, to explain it doesn't work because unsaved people cannot grasp it with their minds. Because the truth of God is spiritually discerned, not intellectually discerned. Then first Corinthians chapter 2, once it says, once you've received that revelation of God, now your mind can begin to understand what you've received, but the understanding of it begins in your spirit. And so when Paul says, that, that to, and to understand the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding, he's talking about that your mind can't grasp. Only your spirit can grasp the extent. Because when he talks about the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, he's talking about the boundaries or the limitations of the love of Christ that God's given to us in Christ. And he's saying your mind can't begin to grasp those boundaries. But your spirit man can. And that's what Paul was praying for them. That their spirit would have a revelation of who Christ is, of that love that God has for them. And so what we began to talk about last week are what are the limits? Because if if Christ, if we're here to be in our life a living witness of that love, then we've got to have an understanding, a revelation of that love. And so we looked last week at an interesting story that Jesus taught to His disciples, actually taught to the Pharisees, because they were upset about some things that He'd said, which is normal, they were always upset about some things that He said. And he told them this story about, about a, a, a man that was traveling down from Jericho, and some thieves jumped him and mugged him. And they left him stripped, no clothes, took all his possessions, beaten him up so that he was ha- almost half dead. He was just lying there about to die. And then three men came along. The first one was a, was a priest. We talked about who the priest was. A priest was somebody called by God to represent God to the people. And we're talking about representing God to people. And this priest went down the street and he took a look at this man. Oh, by the way, the man, the, 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 we don't know what the man was. The priest looks at him and he decides that's not my responsibility and he crosses the street to go to the other side so he didn't have to look at the needs that this man had because most likely he was on his way to the temple to perform his worship to God. And the second man that came down the street was a Levite and the levites were the children were the tribe of israel that god assigned to maintain the, the the church the tabernacle and they were responsible for the 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 worship service and the utilities and the and it, basically they were responsible for the church building the chairs everything that needed to be done they were the church staff and he looks at this man who is half dead and naked and and robbed and he crosses to the other side these are two men that should have represented God to that man. And the third man that came down the street was a Samaritan. And I explained to you that the Samaritans were hated by the Jews because they were half-breeds. They were half-Jew and half-Gentile. And so they looked down at them even more so than they looked down on the Gentiles because they saw them as compromisers. And Jesus chose a Samaritan and said, He saw this man and was moved with compassion. Because the question that the lawyer had asked Jesus that opened this discussion up was G- he came to Jesus and said to Jesus you know what do you have to do to be saved and Jesus said what are the keep the commandments and he said well what are the commandments and the man said whether to love your Lord your God with all your heart with all your mind and with all your with all your uh, strength and your neighbor as yourself and Jesus said you've answered rightly go and do that and you'll live and so the Samaritan the, the lawyer it says in order to justify himself ask the question, who is my neighbor? And what we saw is what the lawyer's trying to ask is, all right, I understand the law says that I'm to love my neighbor as myself, but what are the limits of that? Tell me, I want to know what the limits of my responsibility are because when I find what that boundary is, I don't have to cross the boundary. I'm only responsible for whatever's is in my, res- my area, my boundary line because boundaries define what you're responsible for. We have a neighbor on two sides of us. I'm not responsible for their grass. I'm not responsible for their leaves until they end up on my grass. (laughs) And they're not... I know because I know where the boundary are. I know where to stop... the grass stops cutting because that's the end of my responsibility. And that's what the lawyer's asking. Okay, Jesus, I understand that I'm responsible to love my neighbor as myself, but now who is my neighbor? He's asking, what's the limit... Of my responsibility. Remember, we're talking about what God's like, and here's God in the flesh. So Jesus tells a story, and he talks about. Then he talks about this Samaritan. No no, responsi- no, no knowledge of God supposedly, and he was moved with compassion, and when he saw this man, he crossed the street. And he he bandaged his wounds. He took out his first aid kit. He bandaged his wounds. He put him on his mule, which was the same. He put him in his car, drove him to the Holiday Inn or or the Hampton Inn, got a room for him, took care of him that night and got up the next morning and he went to the clerk and he said, look, I'm leaving him in the room Take care of him. Whatever he needs, here's some money. When this money runs out, here's my American Express card. Charge it to my account. Whatever he needs, because I'm going to come back in a couple of days to make sure that he's okay. In other words, he gave of his time, because it wasn't convenient for him. He gave of his convenience, he gave of his money, he gave of his resources. In other words, he he just saw the need, was moved with compassion, and that compassion moved him to do whatever was necessary. He didn't ask how, what do I have to where do I have to stop? Whatever was needed, that's what he was willing to do. And he didn't count the cost. And then Jesus asked the question, "Okay, lawyer, which one was the neighbor, and he said, "I suppose it's the one who showed mercy." So, what we learn from that is we're to be a witness. If we're to be a witness of God, what's God like? And what we saw is God has no boundary on where He's willing to go. God has no limit on His love, and that ties in with Ephesians chapter three, this prayer, because what Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus, and we can pray for the church in Seekonk is that we would have a revelation of the boundlessness, the boundlessness of God's love. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to continue on. This boundless love, a love of God that has no boundaries, no limits on how far He's willing to go. And we're going to look at different components of what boundaries we set and how God blows through those boundaries. So to do that, Let's look at who He's willing to love. Who is God able to love? What's the limit on who God loves? Because we look at some people and say, well, oh, they're just not lovable. Well, I don't have to turn, have you turn to this scripture because we all know it by heart. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loves the church that He gave His only begotten Son. That No? That's not what it says? So God so loves Faith Christian Center. Well, He does. But that's not what the verse says. For God so loves the world. So when we talk about the limits of God's love, we find out that the limits are the world. That there's no person, there's no situation that God's love does not reach down to or out to. Now we're talking about We're called to be a witness of him. Jesus lived his life as a witness. So he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So who is he willing to love? For God so loves the world. Let's go now to Luke. There's some wonderful stories in Luke. Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at several stories in here. Who is he willing to save? Because, you know, the tendency is in our own thinking, which is what gets us in trouble, is we think in terms of, well, ever, I, and I won't ask for a show of hands <clears throat> because I'd have to probably raise my hand, but how many of you have ever thought, you know, boy, that, that's a good person. They, they, they all, that's a, that person will make a great Christian. We look at them and say, boy, they're a good person. Wouldn't it be wonderful if they got saved? Or we look at somebody and say, Oh, God would never save that person. They're beyond, they're beyond hope. We've put limits on God's love and what we've done is we've taken our own limits and we've imposed them on God. And here's the problem. God's love can only flow through you to the extent that your mind is willing to let it flow. So if our mind has built in boundaries, well, God would never go there or God would never love that person, then God's not able to love them through us even though He does want to love them. We have limited what God wants to do through us. So we've got to begin to renew our mind about who God is and see how God, what God has been with us and find out that God had to take the limits off when it came to us. See, we're not so special that God looked at us and said, oh, they just fit in perfectly. I'm going to save them because they deserve to be saved. You know what it takes to deserve to be saved? You have to be a raunchy, lost sinner. That's the qualification to be saved. And some of you know you were raunchy and lost. And then I came from a class of people that thought we were pretty good because we were basically doing what we thought is everything right. I wasn't hooked on drugs. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't run around, cheat on my wife. I didn't cheat on my taxes. I was what I thought was a good person. But I was just as lost, just as rebellious, just as proud as the rest of you that were down in the street doing drugs. But it's easy when you're up and in to think that everybody else is down and out and they don't deserve it, and you do. And so when we put limits on who can be saved, we put limits on how far God would go, then we limit what God is able to do through us, even though that's what He wants to do. We put those limits on God. And so Jesus was dealing here with a group of men called the Pharisees who did that. They limited in their own minds who God would love, who God would, was proud of, who God would take care of, and just by coincidence, they happened to be in the middle of that group. In fact, they defined the group by who they were which is what we tend to do. So this starts out with a verse we've talked about before, and it's very telling. Luke 15, verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to Him to hear Him. We'll stop there for a moment because we talked about this before. I remember in the middle of a message earlier this year, quoting this, and it struck me. Jesus was the only perfect man, the only purely righteous man that's ever lived. And his righteousness was obvious. And yet, look who was drawn to him. Now, tax collectors, a little hard for us to grasp, but they were considered the thieves. Because what the tax collectors were, was they were Jews that the Romans hired and licensed them to collect taxes. And they would say, this is your quota, what you have to collect from the people, but you can use this license, this authority, to collect whatever beyond that you can manage to squeeze out of them. Which is why Zacchaeus, when he got saved, said, I got to return what I stole. Because he stole, and the tax collectors used the people, they used their authority to steal money from their own people. So they were despised. So all the tax collectors, the thieves, the cheats, the, 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 um, those that were absconding with money, those that were, 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 were con artists, and the sinners, that includes all the rest of us, look what they did with Jesus. They drew near to Him. They were drawn to Him and to hear Him. And the question that we've asked a number of times is, if we're witnesses of Him, why don't they draw near to us? To hear us? Is it because there aren't any thieves out there? Is it because there aren't any sinners out there? Is it because there aren't any people out there with their lives falling apart? No, we know that's not true. Then it must not be that there are no tax collectors and sinners. Maybe we're not really witnesses of Him. Maybe it's because we've been trying to do witnessing for Him instead of being witnesses. Of him. There's a book written in 1989 by an author named Philip Yancey. He's just written another book, a follow-up to it, called What's So Amazing About Grace? It's a very challenging book. It's a very good book because it really opens your eyes up to what grace is and how the church has been so ungracious, ungracious, non-gracious. And maybe that's why. And he starts out with a story about meeting a girl who'd run away from home. She was raised in a Christian home through a Christian, through a church, through, a, through her youth group and Sunday school, or youth group in, in church. And then when she did what so many other teenagers tend to do, when they get out of youth, they go, instead of coming into the, to what we call the adult church, they just disappear. And she ended up on the streets of New York as a prostitute. And he ran into her and started talking to her. And her life was broken. She didn't want to stay where she was. She wanted to get out. She wanted to get delivered. And he said to her, Dear, there's many churches here. Why don't you go to a church for help? And she just looked at him in shock. This is a girl raised in church. And she said, Why would I want to go there? They're just going to judge me for where I've been and what I've done. And that was the opening of his book. The tax collector's the sinners, the prostitutes, drew near to Him to listen to Him. Because they could sense coming from Him wasn't judgment. This is from a man who... Because what they'll say to... Well, you're holier than thou. Well, He is holier than thou. So it's not being holy. It's not being righteous. It's not living a good life. It's the attitude we have about it. That because I'm... Now say, because I've now been made the righteousness of God, that makes me better than you. That makes the church better. No, all we are is sinners saved by grace. And that was a gift, not something we figured out ourselves. This is an inner attitude we're talking about. Because all our words mean nothing if our attitude isn't right. If we don't have His heart... In his attitude, the tax collectors and the sinners drew near. Not just to, not, They weren't just coming out of curiosity. They were coming to hear what he had to say. But the Pharisees didn't like that. Verse 2. The Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Think about that. We're talking about God in the flesh. And these are the men that are called to represent Him and they're criticizing Him. They're judging God in the flesh that tells you where they were. And they're criticizing Him because He eats with these people. He actually goes out and gets His hands dirty and goes out where the sinners are. He doesn't just sit in church all day and pray. He actually goes out into the community and lives among people where they live and touches them where they are. But aren't you glad God did that with us? He just didn't sit in heaven. Because I explained to you at the end of last week that just as the Samaritan crossed the street to go to the other side, God crossed a much more enormous street than whatever, however wide that street was. He came out of heaven and took on flesh because we were lost and we were dying. That's what His love is like. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They looked down on them, because looking down on the sinners made them feel good about themselves. Anytime you've got to put somebody else down to lift yourself up, something's wrong. You're standing on the wrong platform. Verse 3, so he spoke this parable, this story to them. Wonderful thing about parables is they're not directly confrontational. They're just a story. And you can hear from them what you're open to hear. And so often Jesus would tell, in the middle of some hot issue, he would just tell this little story and they didn't get it. The disciples would get it. Let's see if we can get it. What man among you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Remember, he's talking about his heart, God's heart, towards these sinners and these tax collectors. What man among you, if having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine, go into the wilderness after the one that was lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found one of my sheep which was lost. And I say to you, Likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner. Say one sinner. sinner. Say it again. Say one One sinner sinner. who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who don't need repentance. This is lousy business. Because if you've got a hundred sheep and one of them's stupid enough to wander off, I mean, doesn't the Darwin's theory of natural selection say that sheep ought to go die? Because if he's stupid enough to wander off, He's going to beget sheep that are stupid and wander off. So, this is just nature's way of naturally selecting the weak out so that the 99 that stay there must be the stronger ones, the ones that need to be bred so they can produce a stronger, healthier, more prosperous flock. Not only that, it doesn't make a lot of sense to leave 99 they are loyal and go after one that got lost. But that's exactly what this shepherd is that Jesus uses as an example of his father. So what does that say about the father? What does it say about his value system? That says about the father that every one of those, of those hundred sheep is personally valuable to him. That means every one of you and I are pers- of us are personally valuable to him. I remember years ago hearing somebody said, you know, well, if Jesus, if everybody else was righteous and I was the only one that needed Jesus to come, he still would have come. And my mind clicked and said, yeah, come on. I mean, I understand that's a nice idea, but Jesus, I mean, show me this in the scriptures, Lord. And as soon as I said that, this came to me. To see, I left the 99. I didn't abandon them. I left them because I went to find the one. I would have come to find just you if I needed to. That's extravagant love. Out of the billions of people that have ever lived or ever will live, if you were the only one that sinned, he still would have come. He didn't come because he counted up. He didn't come at that time in history because he counted up that many people that were going to accept him. And he said, okay, now there's enough here that it's worth sending my son. Oh, that's good. God didn't look at him and say, let's see, I got, let's see, I got 3 billion, 7 million, 483 thousand, met the quota, now it's worth, now it's worth sending my son, because that many souls, in my mind, are worth my son's life. If we're not careful, we don't realize it, but that's how we think, we compare values in our mind. And Jesus is teaching us here, no, this is not what God's life was like. God's love is you were enough. You were loved enough. You were precious enough to Him. You were were valuable enough to Him that if you were the only one that needed Jesus to come, He still would have come, taken on flesh, walked among men, and gone to that cross, been beaten and gone into hell and been raised from the dead just for you. Because in God's heart, every single individual is worth his son's life separately. Wow. Wow. The world looks at us as a group, as a mass, and figures out what's our value. And we're living in a world where the value of human life is going through the floor in this country. The value of a human life in the mother's womb where she can't protect themselves is considered just a piece of meat. In fact, now the tendency in our institutes of quote-unquote higher education, there's now the philosophy out there being espoused by many scientists. It's been done for years that all you really are is a bunch of twitching meat. We're We're just matter filled with fluids and electrons that make us operate. And that's because that makes us expendable. In fact, there's even a theory out there that I've just read recently, and I mentioned it a few weeks ago. It shocked me to read this because I don't get exposed to this very often. That there are some animals that are now being considered, in certain circles, more valuable than some people. because they're not deformed, they have some intelligence, some apes that have intelligence, some some dolphins that have some measure of intelligence, that there are scientists now that are beginning to value them more than certain strata of humans that are old and infirm and can't take care of themselves, that are young, too young to take care of themselves, can't produce for society. I'm telling you, when you separate yourself from God... Man is capable of any measure of insanity. And we only have to look back about 60 or 70 years to to see examples of that. Well, that wasn't the focus this morning. All right. God had compassion on them. Now, let's skip down because he talks about the parable of the lost coin. We're going to go to verse 11. Verse 11. This is the main thing I want to talk about this morning. It's another story. This is in response to the same issue. Another little parable. A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of his goods, of goods that fall to me. So he divided them, to them, his livelihood. So he took his, he took his fortune and he divided at that point between his two sons. That's important. Now, for a, a, for a son in those day and age to do this was essentially to reject his father. It was basically to say, I'm going to consider you as if you're dead because what I would have gotten when you died, I want now. So it's as if you're dead to me and I want to take my life into my own hands. I'm, I'm, not, I, I, I'm not willing to just trust you to take care of me. I want, to, I want to live my own life. I want to make my own way. I want to prove myself. I want to prove what I can do. So I want to take my inheritance. Oh, this is good. I've never taught this this way before. I want to take my inheritance. Now, the very n- nature of inheritance is that something you received, you didn't earn. You're receiving something somebody else earned, and you got it because they died. It may have, the, the wealth may have come from your great-grandparents through your parent, father or, or mother, through your parents, but it was something somebody else made. It was money somebody else made that you've now received, first of all, because they're dead, and secondly, you didn't earn it. You just got it as a gift, and it cost them their life for you to have it. So when he says, Father, I, I don't want to live under your roof anymore. I don't want to be dependent on you anymore. I want to go make my own way, he doesn't just leave with the clothes on his back and start out and make his own fortune. He wants to start out with something his father gave him to begin with. Now there's a parallel here because we want to make our own life our own way. We want to prove ourselves what we can do that I can, I'm educated, I've got this education, I make this money, I drive this kind of car, I've been this successful, and for different people, that means different things. For some people, it means the car they drive, the job they have, the money in their bank. For some, it means all kinds of different things, but it's something I've built. And I can look back on at the end of my life and say, I did this, I made this, I made this family, I built this house, I built this whatever it is. And we can look and there's something in our humanness, our human fallen nature that wants to go make something of ourselves. We don't want to come to the end of our life and look back and say, I did nothing. And that's true. We don't want to. But keep in mind that the life that's in you that you're going to go make, you didn't create. It's a gift. It was given to you just as this fortune was given to this young man. It wasn't something he earned, it was something that he really wasn't even entitled to at that point, but his father chose to graciously give him what he was not entitled to yet, even though it cost the father the relationship of his son. Imagine the hurt watching the the son walk away, taking that full of pride and ambition in himself. Well, you know the story, but let's read down through it. So the father son leaves. And when he would spent all, there arose a great famine in the land, and he began to be in want or need. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of the country, and he sent him to the fields to feed the swine. Now you can imagine for a Jew to be feeding pigs. They were considered unclean, they were not allowed to eat their meat because they were cloven hooves, they could not eat the meat of a pig and he's now feeding the pigs. He's gone on his own to prove himself and let's see what he's proven. He's proven he can spend money, well we've proven we can spend our lives, we've proven we can spend time, we've proven we can waste time, we've proven we can spend time, we've proven we can spend our lives, we can spend our energy we can spend our time, we can spend the resources we have. We can spend that, but that doesn't prove anything about us. We can, anybody can do that. But he spent everything he had. And then just at the time he spent everything he had, a famine arises. And now he's in need. He's hungry. He doesn't have food. He doesn't have the clothing that he used to have. So he goes, he's going to take... Oh, this is so good. He's going to take his life still in his own hands and figure out his own answer. So now he's in this desperate need and he's figuring, all right, I know what I'll do. I'm going to go get a job. And I'm going to work hard to make the money that I need. So he goes and he joins himself to a pig farmer because that's all he can get. And the pig farmer sends him out into the slop to feed the pigs because that's where pigs live They live out in the slop, so I don't want to ruin your morning if whatever you're going to have to eat afterwards. But you can use your imagination. He's out down there with the pigs, feeding them in their slop, and everything else is there—the corn husks and whatever else they're eating—and he begins to get jealous of the pigs, of what they're eating. Now this is an example of what happens when we take our life in our own hands and we make a mess and we say, bless God, I got myself into this mess, I'm going to get myself out of this mess. That's still taking my life into my own hands. There are some people out there, and obviously it's not you, that are in a financial difficulty so they figure, what I'm going to do is I'm going to work harder, I'm getting three and four jobs so I can't come to church, I can't be at home with my family ever. I'm going to work harder and and get more jobs so I can make more money because we're in want. I'm going to try harder and I'm going to give more of myself instead of trusting my life to God to begin with. Because God's very good at taking care of His own. We're going to see how good He is. Verse 16, this is how bad it got. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swiner ate. But nobody gave him it. The the pigs didn't share with him. (laughs) He let with his great ambition, this great pride, this great hope, this great future of all he was going to accomplish, even though he started with money he didn't earn. And he goes out there, and all he's managed to do is blow it and spend it on some translations say, riotous living. And now he's come to the end of himself. He's now going to work his way out of it. And he hires himself out, and he's in the slop with the pigs. And it's so bad, as the pigs take a bite of those pods, he's beginning to drool out of envy at what that pig has gotten to eat. And nobody will help him. He has nothing to give them. Because you see, the world operates on what can you give me? And when you have nothing to give them and you're down in the slop of the pigs, you've got no value to them. So they'll turn their back on you. Because you don't deserve. This man deserved nothing but what he got. He rebelled against his father. He's proud. He's, he's, he's arrogant. He's gone out there to prove himself and he's made a disaster of it. And he's still proud. We're talking about how far the love of Christ will go, how far God's love will go, that there's no bounds, no limits. This Jew is down with the pigs in the slop, envious of what they have to eat. And God's heart is there with him. The Father's heart is still there with him. So God's love will go down into the pig slop Some of you have been in that. Some of you have been in the slop of life. You were hooked on drugs, whatever it was. Some of you were even worse stories than that. And you're here today. You're here today, cleaned up. Not because you went and found a good job for yourself. You're here today because the love of God reached down into that gutter, reached into that crack house, reached into that place of prostitution, reached into that office building, reached into your bedroom, reached into wherever it was, and waited for you to come to your senses. And the moment you came to your senses, He was there. Verse 17, this is the big turnaround in this young man's life and this was the big turnaround in your life and my life. But when he came to himself, when he suddenly realized where he was, he he came to his senses, he woke up and saw where he was, which means he'd not been awake really, he'd not been conscious of what he was doing up until then. He said, wait a minute, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to eat and to spare and here I am perishing with hunger? I know what I'll do, verse 18, I'll rise and go to my father and will say to him, Father I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, make me like one of your hired servants. So he's figured out a way out of this, I know, and then this much, I know my father's a good provider, I know my father's good to his servants. I know my God is good to those employees. He takes care of them. He gives them food to eat. He pays them a good wages. They have a place to live and they aren't living in the slop. At least they can take a shower at night. And they've got clean clothes to wear. I know what I'll do. I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to repent and say, Father, take me back as one of your hired servants right now. That looks very good to me compared to where I've been now. Boy, before it didn't, it wasn't good enough to be the father's son living in the father's house. Now anything that he can get from the father looks good. Verse 20, and he arose and he came to his father. Oh, this is so good. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. So in order for his father to see him, he must have been looking for him. The father didn't say, well, I'm done with that kid. I'm going to devote myself to the other one that's still here, the loyal one. I'm done with that kid. He rebelled against me. He was smart. He's made a mess of his life. Even if he could see he was in the pig slop, I'm done with him because what kind of son would that be of mine? No. When he was still great way off, the father saw him. You can only see things at a distance... if you're looking for him. Expecting, hoping, waiting. This is the son that rebelled against him. This is the son that took half of his stuff and went away with it. This is the son that was arrogant, ungrateful, full of pride, and went off on his own. And the father's still waiting, looking, hoping. Maybe it's today. Straining at the... Straining it i 'm sure the the, the the household members and the servants, Oh, why are you looking anymore let 's get about the household business oh, i've got to wait i can 't be rest because part of me 's out there and when he was still a great way off, his father had, saw him and here 's that word again: he had compassion. Remember we saw that Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem and saw the crowd and saw that they were lost and they were weak and they were they had no they were confused and he had compassion for them and he said let's pray the lord of the harvest to send laborers into the field and then we saw that that the priest and the Levite looked at this man and they'd had no concern for him but the but the Samaritan looked at him and he had compassion the one thread through all these stories is that word compassion and I explained to you last week that word means something very different than the word sympathy to sympathize for somebody means to feel sorry for them and you can feel sorry for somebody and it doesn't move you but compassion means literally if you break that word down to have the same feeling that they have to feel what they're going through and if you begin to feel what somebody else is going through it moves you to do something for them And he had compassion. And look at this next thing. And he ran. This is the father. This is the head of the household. Who in that culture. It was a lack of dignity to run anywhere. For a father to run to his child. Was totally to abandon and throw away all of his dignity. All of his prestige. All of his standing. And to do it. Remember they wore long robes. So to do that, he had to you and Jesus, the Bible talks about girding up the loins of your mind, Peter talks about that, to gird up their loins, what that meant is you would take, you would reach down and you would take the back edge of your robe and you would pull it up from your, between your legs and you would tie it around your waist so that that robe didn't drag, that it was like pantaloons now, because otherwise you'd trip over the robe. So he, in order to do this, he had to pull up his robes, which again, represented his dignity, pull it up exposed his legs, wrapped that around him, and then ran towards his son. Now there's no evidence here that between the pigsty and his father, this son found a shower. There's no evidence that on his way back he passed the Brooks Brothers and had a chance to go get a new suit on to go back. He is covered with the same stuff he left in his heart now. It's dried and it's hardened. His face is muddy. He's emaciated. He's thin. We don't know what condition his hair looks like. And the father's runs towards him. And it fell on his neck. That means he threw his arms around, of his clean robe, around this dirty son and embraced him and he kissed him. Not in the house when the son arrived... And presented himself to the Father. But out on the fields where the... Son, all the servants saw this. Where the Father ran to where he was. As soon as he saw him. And kissed him. Next verse. And the son now begins to give his speech. Because we just read the son rehearsed the speech earlier. Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, let me ask you a question. Was he his son to begin with because he was so worthy? Are your children your children because they're worthy to be your children? They're your children because they're born out of you. They come from you. That's what makes them a child, not because they've met a certain standard say, okay, now, now, now you've proven you can be my child, but you know, the first 10 years you're on probation, the first 15 years. <laughs> that might be nice, but it's not the way it works. The first 10 years you're on probation, and now that we see you've made it, or fi- now we see you've made it through this age group, Now you made it through the terrible twos. Now you've qualified. Now now we go through this probation. period. Now you're accepted as as our son. No, in the hospital. I've never seen a father go around with this child saying, here's this child, it's on probation. And we hope someday this is going to be our child. I'll never forget when, when we were in the hospital, when our youngest, the twins, were being were being born, actually, yeah. and, and I, I was sitting in the little waiting room because while they were checking her out, and, and this grandmother's in there, and the, f- her son comes in with a white robe on, you know, with a beaming from ear to ear, and he's showing everybody in the waiting room this, this, this little boy, and which was their first, and as he leaves, the mother turns to me and says, that's interesting, he wasn't going to have anything to do with that child, he didn't even want to be here today, he wanted to go out and play golf or whatever it was. All through the nine months, he had wanted nothing, now you can't get the child out of his hands why? because it's now his son and the child hasn't done anything yet in fact about all the child's going to do for a while is process food no value they need everything and can do nothing except cry burp and occasionally we think they smile, but that's just gas. <laughs> and we show pictures. Why? That child isn't worth anything. But they're born of us. They're born of us. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now he's in this speech. Go to the next verse, 22. But the father said to his servants, Now notice what the father doesn't do here. This is very important. The father never answers the son. I don't think he even hears what the son's saying. The son's giving is a speech of what what he expects the father, hopes the father will do for him if the father's gracious. And this is where a lot of us are with God. We hope that if God in his mercy will accept us back, he'll accept us back as a hired servant that we can earn our keep and earn our board and earn our way with Him in the, king, in the family of God. And when you came to your senses and God put His arms around you and cleaned you up and kissed you and brought you into His family, He didn't bring you in as a hired servant. That you have to maintain your, 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 your level as a servant so that God will continue to provide for you and take care of you. Because the moment you turn to Him, and received this love of Christ, whether you understood it or not, you became a child of God. That's why Romans 8 says, We've not been given a spirit of fear, again, a spirit of, but we've given a spirit of adoption, leading into bondage, but we've been given a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That word Abba in the Aramaic is daddy. It's the cry of a child out of need for its parent. Daddy, mama. He didn't hear the terms that the child, because he didn't receive that son back on any terms other than he's still my son. He was lost, and now he's found. Just as that sheep was lost, and now he's found. This son was lost, and now he's home. That's all I know. That's all I care about. He's still my son. And he Put the best robe on, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet. Go to 23. And bring out the fatted calf. That was the calf that they saved for special celebrations, to have a special meal. And kill it, and let us eat and be merry, verse 24. For this my son was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and he's found. And they began to be merry with him. All the Father knows is He's mine. Whether He's in the pigsty or whether He's sitting next to me with a robe and a ring and sandals, He's my Son. He's mine. Whether He's full of pride about what He can make of His own life and He's being foolish with it, whether He's expending His life and wasting it on things that are just totally disastrous, He's still my Son. I still love Him. He hasn't gone beyond the limits of my love. He hasn't gone beyond the breadth and the length and the height. The pigsty is not below God's love for Him. That far country was not beyond the limits of the Father's love for Him. There was no limit to the Father's love for this son. Oh, but we have another son. Verse 25. Oh, remember him? Charlie his older son, was in the field. He was being faithful to work for his father. He was being faithful to serve his father. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the music and the dancing, verse 26. And so he called one of the servants and asked him, what does this mean? Keep going. And he said to him, your brother, your brother has come And because he was received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. Verse 28. But he was angry. Oh. The son, Charlie, the older one, apparently had a limit on the love that he had for his brother. So that the moment his brother, younger brother, took his inheritance... And walked out that door, he walked out of the limits of his brother's love for him. So whatever he's going through out there, it doesn't matter to the brother. Because he stepped across the boundary limits of how far he was willing to love his brother. And now that the brother wants to come back inside that limits, he doesn't deserve that he wasted what he he wasted what my father freely gave him i didn't waste it i've been faithful and i've been here all these years and served my father but he was angry and would not go in he wouldn't participate in the celebration because there was in his heart his heart was judging his brother his heart was, not. He was angry. There's two types of anger. Anger, your emotions can be, we're learning this on Wednesday nights, your emotions could be windows into what's going on in your heart. There's a, such a thing as a righteous anger, but it's never based on you. And it's always peaceable. You can be upset because some, because c- we're to be angry at sin. We're to be angry at the things that God gets angry at. But we're to love who God loves. But when we find ourselves angry at people, it's often because we think they're getting away with something they shouldn't be getting away with. And the Bible says when we do that, we're judging them. I so be very careful because there's two problems with judging other people. First problem is, the Bible says in several places, that the measure you judge them with is the measure God's going to use on you. So if you're gracious with other people and understanding with other people, God's able to be gracious and understanding with you. But if you're tough with other people and demanding of other people, of the standard that they must live up to, then God, if He's going to be true to His Word, has to do that. In other words, we set the level of grace and mercy God's going to give us by what we give to other people. But the second reason why it's dangerous is because in James chapter 3, he says, when you judge someone else, you make yourself the lawgiver. Because only the lawgiver is the one that has the right. In other words, you're putting yourself in God's place. He was like that. He was so conscious of what, how he had been so faithful and so conscious of how good he'd been that he compared his brother to himself and said he falls way short and he was angry that his father was being loving and gracious to his son who did not his brother who did not deserve that love and that grace but I've told you before the very essence of grace is it's not something we deserve verse 29 so he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. Listen to, the, listen to his, where his heart is. I have never transgressed your commandments at any time, yet you never gave me a young goat that I may make merry for my friends. But soon as this son of yours, notice he's not my brother anymore, this son of yours, as soon as this son of yours came who devoured your livelihood and with harlots, and you killed the fatted calf for him. This doesn't add up, Father. He's not getting what he deserves here. This is what he did to you. This is what he did against you. And this isn't right. This isn't justice. This isn't right. We're talking about the love of God that has no boundaries. And yet you've treated him as a son, and you've killed, you're celebrating over him. Verse 31, he said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. Verse 32, it was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. very quickly tell you another story. It's in the Old Testament. Speaks along these same lines. A prophet named Jonah, the book of Jonah. He's a prophet of God. God speaks to him and says, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh and I want you to tell him, get your affairs in order because in 40 days you're, it's to, you're toast. That's modern translation of it. I mean, Because Nineveh was so evil, it was the most evil city on the face of the earth at the time and maybe that's ever been. I don't want to go into the things that they used to do the children as sacrifices. But they were cruel, they were horrible, they were mean, they were ungodly, but they were mean, they were vicious. There was just nothing redeeming about them. And God speaks to His prophet and says, I want you to go and tell them that they're over, it's over, it's done with. Forty days and you're toast, you're, you're being judged. You're going to be wiped off the face of this earth. Well, you'd think Jonah would be excited about that. But we know the story. Jonah gets in a boat headed the other direction. Nineveh was east. He went west. Get me on a boat that's going west. He gets out on the boat. You know the story. Great storm comes up. And finally, Jonah says, I realize I'm the problem here because I'm running away from God. Throw me overboard. So they throw him over and he gets swallowed by a great fish which is the Repentance Hotel <clears throat> because the purpose of this fish The purpose of this fish was twofold. It was to keep Jonah from other things that were out there that wanted to eat him. But keep him in such a condition that he wouldn't want to stay there. And around chapter 3, Jonah repents. And God has this fish turn around and spits him out, giving him momentum, headed towards Nineveh. And we could go through some of the details of what he looked like and what all that meant. But I want you to see this. The reason Jonah ran away... I'll tell you in a minute. So Jonah realized now it's better to obey God than to take things into my own hands. So he goes through the city, marches through the city and gives his brief six or seven word sermon. Repent in 40 days, you're going to die. And he goes to sit on the outside on the other side on a hill to wait and see what happens. Well, when the king of Nineveh hears this, He cries out to God and said, God, if there's any chance, because there was nothing in that message that said God would forgive them. There was no indication in there that if they repented, God would forgive them. So the king of Nineveh calls a day of fasting for the entire city and prayer and begins to put sackcloth and ashes on and cry out to God, if possible, if you would see your way and be merciful to us, please forgive us and we will change. Well, God heard his cry and God changed his mind and God chose to be merciful but that's not what the story's about the story's about Jonah because Jonah now sees what happens and he starts to pout now we find out why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh it wasn't he was afraid of Nineveh he was afraid because he knew his God that if they repented God would forgive them and they weren't deserving of being forgiven because they were cruel and evil so Jonah's pouting because God's going to forgive this evil nation and they're going to get away with things Jonah never did so, God causes a little plant to grow up in the middle of the daytime. And it gives him shade from the sun. And then God causes this plant to die and shrivel up. And Jonah gets mad at God because the plant shriveled up. You ready for this? You may want to pull your toes in. And God speaks to him and says, Jonah, this was an object lesson. You care more about this plant than 600,000 souls in that city and their animals. You care more about what happened to that plant than those thieving, terrible, hideous, horrible people in there which obviously God cared about enough to hear their cry. Jonah was like the elder brother. He looked at them in terms of what they deserved. He looked at them in terms of the boundaries of how far he thought God would go because they didn't deserve God to go to where they were because they were beyond God's mercy. If we indeed are called to be witnesses of Christ, then we have to be willing to allow Him to love us with His love to love people that in our eyes are not lovable to love people that in our eyes are not worthy of mercy and grace the way we were worthy of mercy and grace. No, we don't understand what mercy and grace is then. We've got to be willing to allow God to love people that we don't want to love. We've got to be willing to care for people that we don't want to care for. We've got to be willing to allow Him, because He can't go places and love people that we're not willing to let Him do through us and it's these attitudes these prejudices these prides that keep him from being able to love through the church so that people from the outside the tax collectors and the sinners want to come and hear at Faith Christian Center what we have to say on your job, want to hear what you have to say it's the love of God that we need to take the wraps off.